Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Our lead pastors, Brian and Perry, are preparing to host not one, but two pilgrimage groups in the Holy Land. And so if you do think of them this week, would you say a prayer for them? Keep them in your prayers. Uh, They do this as a service to the body of Christ. I know, how many of you have been to the Holy Land before on a pilgrimage with Pastor Brian? Yeah. It's life-changing. I know uh, my wife, Megan, and I were able to go and take my grandparents, which was like, uh, man, like a dream come true to to have them experience that. And it is life-changing, and our pastors do this as a service, I believe, to the body of Christ. And so it's exhausting, but my prayer is that as they give, as they sow, that the Lord would, in a mystery, bring them back to us refreshed and rejuvenated. Amen? Amen. So uh, this morning... We're going to, to spend some time in Scripture together. It's, it's the third Sunday in Lent. And man, I love that we have this church calendar to orient our life around, that we get to relive the rhythm of the Jesus story year after year after year. Not everyone shares my enthusiasm, though, for the church calendar. I spent some time with our middle school students one Sunday upstairs in 678, And it was during the Advent season, which is like the new year for our Christian calendar. And I I introduced the series of Advent. And as I began to talk about the story of the anticipation of the coming Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, I'm excited. It's Christmas season. It's in the air. We're preparing for a new year. A student blurts out and says, not the same story again. (laughs) It's the same every time. The same characters, the same places. I'm so bored with this Christmas story. I'm like, you have a lot of life to live, son. (laughs) You will tell and retell and hear and rehear this story for years to come. So get used to it. Well, stories, see, stories are different than facts. Yes, with facts, we learn a fact and we move on. But stories, stories, though they contain facts... Stories are more complex. In fact, stories are as complex as the people the story are told about. Or should I say as complex as the people who hear and read, encounter stories. See, we learn a fact and we move on. For instance, we learn that there are seven days in a week and we move on. I have a a daughter in kindergarten and she's learning all these things. She's learning that two plus two equals four. And then she moves on. We don't sit there and debate, uh, you know, and explore the deep meaning of addition. Two plus two is four. We, we just simply find out, we learn the fact, and we move on. But see, stories are different because stories can be told time and time again. And if we are willing, we get to discover a multiple facets of truth within the same story. If you think about it, it's true. 
And what I love about our faith is that the good news of Jesus is not shared with us as a list of theological facts or conclusions. Now, we have theological facts and we come to theological conclusions, but we are not presented with the good news of Jesus by, by someone giving us a list of theological facts, or at least we should not be presented the gospel of Jesus as a list of theological facts, because the gospel of Jesus, the good news of God breaking into the world to save the world, to restore the world, to redeem the world, is told to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the beautiful story of the life of Jesus. In fact, it's a part of a grand story of God and humanity from Genesis through Revelation. And as we share this story of Jesus year after year, the facts of the story don't change, as this student pointed out a few years ago. But hopefully... As we hear this story and counter the story of Jesus over and over, our understanding of the story might change. Should I say it should change? We do this in our lives, don't we? In fact, as we grow older, we tell the same stories that we've told since we were young, but the stories seem to change in how we tell them. When I was young, we had family reunions. Anybody remember family reunions? I miss family reunions, man. We used to go to the parks. We'd rent out a pavilion, gather the family up. We'd have yard darts. Yeah, yeah yard darts, horseshoes, right? We, cornhole's like the new thing, but that, like the OG is yard darts, in my opinion. Anyway, so we'd have these family reunions, and we'd either gather at my grandpa's house or that aunt's house that I never could remember her name or like how we were related, but she was an aunt nonetheless. We would gather all the family together, and you know my favorite part of reunions? You'd think would be getting together with all my loved ones, but no, as a child, my favorite part of family reunions were the soda pop coolers. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody brought their coolers and they just line them up wherever, outside, inside, and it would just be like a, a heyday, free for all for all the children. Why? Because the parents aren't watching the kids. They're like families around. They're fine. We don't have to, we get the day off, you know? They're playing with themselves. Cousins are entertaining themselves. And little did they know that the whole time I was just hour after hour returning, getting another Coke and another Coke and another Coke. Why? Because my parents had a rule. I only got one soda per day. That's it. And that was in the summertime. School time, no way. We were reduced to like just the weekends. But on the weekends and in the summer, we were granted one soda per day. So the decision of when and how and what that soda would be was a, was a big decision for me. But man, I remember growing up and I would tell my friends who got to have as much soda as they wanted, my parents are so strict they only allow me one soda per day. Can you believe it? Some of you are sitting here right now saying, your parents let you drink soda? <laughs> yeah, it was the 80s. Uh, <laughs> here's the deal. Today, as I tell that story, I'm older and I'm wiser. I'm a parent myself. I look back and I say, thank God I had some parents that weren't strict. As a young person, I was like, I got strict parents. Today, I look back and I say, I had wise parents. I had caring parents. I tell the story that my parents, thank God, limited me to one soda per day. You see, the story is the same, but our perspective of this story can change. This is what C.S. Lewis points out as he writes this novel, Prince Caspian, as a part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. He, he writes this scene where Lucy, who encountered Aslan, who is the, the character of God in the story as a lion, 
as a young child, she encounters and meets for the first time Aslan. But later on in the story, she comes back to Narnia and she encounters Aslan again, but now she's grown. She's older. She's bigger. And the conversation between Aslan and Lucy goes like this. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see... C.S. Lewis, this is, this is brilliant. He reveals to us this truth that, yes, God is greater than our capacity to contain God. I think we could all agree with that. We, we spend our life, in fact, humanity spends our whole existence in search of understanding this God, creator God, eternal God, who is greater than our capacity to ever understand, but we spend our existence seeking to understand, to get a hold of, to contain this idea of God. But God is greater than our capacity to contain God. But as we grow, like Lucy, as we grow, so does our ability to perceive just how large the love of God is. That hopefully, as we grow up in our faith, we see God as Bigger and bigger and bigger. That, and and can, I, can I put more of a fine point on it? That I believe as we grow up in our faith, as we mature in our faith, we actually come to see the love of God. Not just, not just the, the magnitude of God, but rather the God who is love becomes larger and larger. And we start to understand just how large the love of God is. And it begins to break down walls in us and hopefully begins to break down walls between us, which we'll get to later this morning. One of the stories that I've preached more than any other story is our reading from today's gospel. It's found in John chapter 4. It is our gospel reading for the week. And I think I've read this story more than any other story in Scripture. I know that I've preached it more than any other story in Scripture. It was like my go-to youth sermon for years. If I was asked to go speak somewhere, this is the one that I would, I would preach on. This story right here. It is the Samaritan woman at the well. And though I've come to this story time and time again, I know it by heart, I've preached it countless times, everything is, sa- is the same in the story every time I read it. My hope is that the one thing that has changed is me. Amen? Amen. Now, I know that today we we lost an hour, but I'm going to ask you to help me this morning. I'm feeling a little groggy, a little tired. So if you do hear something you agree with, I would love for you to help me preach this morning with a little amen. And so my hope is that as we come to this story again this morning, that we might find a new perspective. And maybe, just maybe, we can find that the love of God is greater than the last time we encountered this woman at the well. Amen. Thank you, Charlie. Hallelujah. I believe that this story can teach us a few things. I believe that this story can teach us about moral failings and forgiveness, about unfulfillment and satisfaction, but I also believe this story can teach us about shame and healing, about vulnerability and courage, about rejection and belonging, and then even further, there's more to the story than that. I believe that the story can also show us 
that Jesus is much more interested in welcoming the people we find most unwelcome into the center of his story. All of these things, forgiveness, healing, and belonging, can be found at the same time within this story if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, which I believe that we will this morning. Amen. Well, let's dive in. John 4, I won't read the whole gospel reading again. It was a long one this morning. Can I be honest? We cut off 15 verses from the lectionary reading. We were supposed to go to verse 45. We just cut it short at like 26. So you're welcome. Uh, For those of you who are feeling like, man, this gospel reading is a long one. Well, it is because it's a long story. It's one of the longest continual stories in the gospel of John. In fact, it's one of the longest recorded interactions Jesus has with a single individual in the whole gospel of John, which I think is profound. I'll set up the story. Jesus is, is coming from Jerusalem. He had just been there for the feast of Passover. This was a big deal in the Jewish calendar. He was at the holy city of Jerusalem, the capital city. And he was traveling from all of the thoroughfare happening in Jerusalem up to a more quiet place in Galilee. It's like going from New York City to the rolling hills of Kansas. All right? You can imagine the difference. This is the difference. And so Jesus, I'm sure, had a great time at the Feast of Passover. Uh, We had stories of many people coming to know and believe in Jesus there, but it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, but rather he leaves Jerusalem and he's on his way to Galilee where he will spend 80% of his time in ministry in the region of Galilee, this countryside. It's beautiful. But on the way, it says that Jesus must travel through Samaria. Now, this is a region, these are like, the long-lost cousins of the Jewish people. They share some of the same ancestors, but the Samaritans believe that worship should happen in a different place than Jews believe. John tells us this in his gospel. They embrace the Torah and the Pentateuch, some of the Hebrew scriptures, but reject many of the prophets. They too have a coming savior. They don't call him Messiah. They call him Taheb, but they're like close distant cousins. They don't get along though. They don't talk to one another. They don't interact with one another. There's tensions there. It's like chiefs and raiders. That's the the metaphor that I've heard used the most. Uh, Becoming maybe the Broncos and the chiefs. I don't know. We don't have a problem with the Broncos, but maybe the Broncos have a problem with us. But you get the picture. They're like, they don't get along. And so Jesus is going to travel through hostile territory. All right. And along the way, They stop outside of a town called Sychar. It's the heat of the day. It's at noon, right in the middle of the day. They're outside the city at the well. This well is a place where the women of the city would come in the cool of the day, either early in the morning or later in the evening, not at the height of the day when the sun is the hottest, but rather the women would come as a group of women from the city, often traveling in groups because there's safety in numbers, to gather their water for the day at the well because they would need their water. They would have a water jar and that water would be for cooking and cleaning, for washing, for drinking. Obviously, we know all this. And Jesus is on his journey and stops at this well and takes a seat. His disciples go into town to buy some food. And Jesus, it says, is tired from his journey. And I just want to say to you this morning, pause and say, if you are exhausted, tired, Jesus understands that you have a God who in Christ experienced exhaustion. And so I don't know what kind of consolation that is to you, but I hope that it brings you comfort this morning that Jesus knows you, he sees you, 
He's been tired as well. You'll make it. Let him be your strength. Amen. So Jesus is tired from his journey and he sits at this well. It's noon, it's hot. And here comes this woman, this Samaritan woman with her water jar to the well. And as she begins to draw water from the well, Jesus says, would you give me something to drink? And the woman doesn't say yes. She says, why would you, a Jewish man, speak to me, a Samaritan woman? And furthermore, we know that there is no way that a Jew would drink after a Samaritan. Jews looked down on Samaritans, saw them as less than, as dirty people, unclean. And yet you're willing to share a drink of water with me, a Samaritan woman? She's taken back. And Jesus responds, says, woman, if you only knew who you were talking to, then you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. She says, where are you going to get this living water? You don't have a bucket. You don't have a jar, nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. In fact, is this water that you have greater than, than our water here? Of course, she says she believes you're going to turn this into a debate that Jews are greater than Samaritans. Your water is better than ours. Your place of worship is better than ours. You people are always better. And, you know, you can see the finger right. You people always. And now the conflict begins. She says, where are you going to get this living water? And he says, oh, the water here at this well that you come to again and again leaves you thirsty day after day. But the water that I offer you, this living water, if you would let it burst, if you would receive this water, it would burst forth from your life like, like, like an unending spring and you would never thirst again. Now she's interested. She says, well, this sounds amazing. You mean I don't have to come back to this well to draw water day after day? I'm in. Jew, no Jew. Samaritan, no Samaritan. I don't care about the divisions anymore. I just want what you're offering so I don't have to come here anymore. Because day after day, she comes not in the cool of the day, but at noon. Why? Because as we are going to find out, this woman is an outcast. She doesn't join her peers coming to the well in the morning. She comes alone at noon. She comes back to this place being reminded of her status as an outcast, as one who's been rejected, as one who carries shame and pain day after day. It's not just about the work of carrying water back and forth. It's also about the symbol that this woman is alone, rejected, wounded, all of the above. She says, I don't have to come back here again. I'm in. Give me this water, sir. Jesus says, well, why don't you go get your husband and come back, and I'll give you this living water I speak of. And of course, she replies and says, Sir, I have no husband. Jesus says, Yes, you are right, you have no husband, because you've had five husbands. Let's pick it up right here, John 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Right here is where I would start preaching. I'd say, oh man, this woman. Jesus is just airing her dirty laundry. He knows all of her past failures, her faults, her sins. Man, this woman has been searching for love in all the wrong places, right? She still hasn't found what she's looking for. I use all the, the song lyrics, you know, pull those out. 
say, man, this woman, I don't know what she's done, but there's one common denominator in all those failed marriages and it's her. And then I'd say, I don't know about you and your sin, your moral failures, but Jesus wants to offer you a water which will satisfy your soul, which can I say this is so true. All of this is true. We don't know the details of this woman's story. We know that she's had five husbands, that she's living with a man now that's not her husband, and that Jesus knows this. That's what we know. Those are the facts. But in between those facts, there's a lot of unknown things, a lot of unknown details, a lot of history. In my earlier years, I would just fill in the gap, probably, if we're honest, aware of, very aware of my own sin, my own moral failures, my own search for satisfaction in all the wrong places in life. And so I would see this woman as someone who was a failure, someone who was a sinner, which we all are. But I would see her as someone who, have, who was a failure. And here she has the opportunity to be forgiven and restored, which is true. I believe that if that's the case, if that's the, the framework that we find the story within, we would say, yes, I too am a sinner in need of grace. And I believe that Jesus would say, I see your sin, I know your sin, and I forgive you. I offer you the gift of salvation, of forgiveness. May it be like water for your soul. But then I would come back to the story over and over, and more questions would begin to arise about this woman the gaps in between those five marriages. I guess I've lived long enough to meet more people who have been through failed relationships and experienced more of life myself. And I began to wonder, what if this woman wasn't just running around as she's often portrayed? Oh, look, she's just going from man to man. I, I hate that. I hate that we just portray her that way. Because I begin to think, what if, what if rather she's been kicked around from man to man. What, what about this woman caused these men to divorce her time and time again? Was she barren? Is this a story about her struggling with infertility? And therefore they say, well, you're, you're, they offer her a certificate of divorce and move on to the next woman. And then so she looks for another man because Oh, because there's a system in place in her day that doesn't allow her to own land, to buy property, to do business. She has no power, no voice. How does she survive in the world without a man? Because the system in her day did not see men and women as those who, belong, who, who, who should have equal rights, belong on an equal playing field. And so then I begin to look at the same system that Jesus speaks to in Matthew 5 and begins to bring justice to this system where men can just divorce their wives and do away with them for, for whatever reason. And I begin to see this woman uh, as someone who has suffered great pain. And then all of a sudden I go, well, what if she is not just someone who's been kicked around and is weak and victimized, but what if she is a woman who is courageous enough to remarry again and again after the pain that she suffered what if this is a woman who endures pain and she carries on and instead of being weak and fragile, she's strong and brave? You see how the story, the facts are the same, but here my perspective begins to change. In fact, I, I find that this woman, I find out reading more, this woman carries on the longest theological debate with Jesus in the Gospel of John. 
So she's not dumb. She's smart. She holds her own with Jesus. She carries on a longer theological debate with Jesus than Nicodemus does in the previous chapter. Can you believe that? This is significant. Not only that, but Jesus chooses this woman to reveal himself as Messiah for the first time in the Gospel of John. He says to her, I am the Messiah that you're waiting for. That's the end of our reading today. I am he. The people that the Jews thought were most unworthy, Jesus calls worthy. His disciples could have never imagined that the person that he chooses to reveal himself as Messiah to was not them first. He calls them to come and follow him. But the first person he chooses to say, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for, is a woman from Samaria. A woman from a people who have been rejected and ostracized by the people of God. I love that Jesus does this. He's unpredictable. In fact, he does the opposite of what we assume. I think maybe we often prefer to see this woman dealing maybe with sin rather than pain. I know that I do because we're schooled in denial. That, that's Walter Brueggemann tells us that. We don't like to go to the place of pain. In fact, we, we'd rather avoid it altogether. Brene Brown says that many people, an increasing number of people today, would rather, know would rather never know love than experience hurt or grief. This woman, after the first couple marriages, could have said, I'm done with this. But she continues to seek to love the best that she can willing to endure hurt and grief again and again for the sake of love. You see how our perspective can change? Same story, same facts. The good news is that Jesus doesn't leave us alone in our pain. Jesus doesn't leave us alone in our sin. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. Amen? Jesus doesn't leave us alone. In fact, it's the places of pain the places that we'd rather never return to, that we'd rather shove under the rug, close the door to, ignore that they're there, that is the very place that God enters the world and makes his presence known to us. It's in our place of pain that Jesus waits for us. Our greatest struggle is the place where Jesus wants to make his love known to us in a revelation that changes our life. This is salvation. Not that God just comes into humanity in the palace, but no, Jesus was born into a, a manger, a back alley manger, a place where the animals were laid. There's no room for Jesus. Jesus says, oh, the world has rejected you. There's no room for you in this world. Guess what? They did the same thing for me in the very beginning. There was no room for him in the end. We've got too much going on here. There's no room for you, Jesus. He says, no problem. I'll just hang out with everyone else who's been rejected and ostracized by society. And so here's Jesus at the well, the place where this woman is reminded that she's alone, the place that in scriptures, Isaac finds a wife, Rebecca, at the well. Jacob finds his wife, Rachel, at the well. Moses finds Zipporah at the well. Can you imagine? She's thinking, man, the well is not a happy place for this woman. 
She returns to it over and over again, except this day she encounters the love of God in Christ. And everything changes. Everything changes. She leaves that place. She says, she leaves her water jar. John tells us that specifically. Why? Because she doesn't need it anymore. She's encountered the living water which Jesus offered, the very love of God which has satisfied her soul. And she says, I must go tell everyone. I've been seen and known and loved, not rejected, not ostracized, not looked down upon, but rather loved and embraced. And as she heads out from Jesus, the disciples arrive on the story. There's more to this story. Jesus is sitting there talking to this woman. She's about to depart and go into town and tell everyone. We find out the whole town comes out, actually. And the disciples, we have this little break from the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, where the disciples, it says that they marveled that Jesus was talking to a woman. What? Come on, guys. They marveled. You know what they're going to marvel at? They're going to continue to marvel that the whole Samaritan town of Sychar comes out and that where Jesus refused to entrust himself to the people in Jerusalem, his own people, he says he will not entrust himself to, he spends two days with these people in Samaria. And this woman, she tells the whole town, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. They come out and they meet Jesus. And the conclusion is they say, we believed because of your testimony, but now we believe because we too have experienced Jesus' presence in our life. We have received this living water. Many of them have received forgiveness. Many of them have received healing. Many of them have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. My question for you to this morning is, who are you in this story? Many of us are the Samaritan woman. May you find yourself in the story this morning. And maybe, yes, you are very aware of your own sin and moral failings this morning. I say to you that Jesus sees you and knows you and Jesus loves you. And his love can be experienced in your life as forgiveness. The old has passed away and behold, all things are made new. Maybe this morning you come and you're very aware of your own long story of pain and suffering. Maybe you've come here again to this place and in the quietness and hearing the story, you're just reminded and brought back to that place of pain again. But as you do this morning, you find that Jesus is there and he sees you and he knows your pain and he loves you. And he bears in his body your pain. And in a mystery by his wounds, you are healed this morning. Or maybe you are the one who comes this morning feeling alone, ostracized, rejected, like you belong nowhere. This morning, I want to say to you that Jesus sees you and knows you. And he welcomes you into the family of God this morning and says, this is where you belong. So may you find this morning forgiveness, healing, and belonging from the one who knows you and sees you and ultimately the one who loves you. Amen? Would you stand on your feet? And as we come to the table this morning, we are reminded by this table that this is the good news of Jesus, that he's given of himself his body broken, his blood shed, that he might reveal to us what God is really like. That in a mystery, 
his body was broken that we might be healed. That his blood was shed that we might encounter a new covenant with God in which we find that it doesn't matter where we were born, which mountain we say we should worship on, but rather that God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. That as Ephesians 2.14 says that Jesus is our peace and he is breaking down the walls of hostility that divide us. And here at this table, we are all welcomed as sons and daughters of the living God, forgiven, healed, and welcomed. Amen? Amen. Let us confess our faith together. Then we will make a confession of sin, find absolution, and then an usher will release you row by row to come and receive from Jesus. We'll just call this living water this morning. This is our participation in the very life of Jesus, that living water which, which he offers to each one of us this morning. May we find that in this bread and in this cup. Amen. Let us confess our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us confess our sin together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So I say to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. And it is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have much faith and you who have little. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. For it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.